The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Uh, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 28, our study continues with the Old Testament priesthood in Israel, and we're discussing the priest role in the sacrificial system. What is the high priest of the Old Testament's part in helping us to recognize Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? Hebrews chapter 5 says that priests are ordained to make sacrifices, and so naturally, when we think of priests, our minds are drawn to the act of making sacrifices, but we're not going to find a a counterpart for that in uh, the New Testament for pastors because we don't make sacrifices. The scriptures are very clear in the New Testament that we have a once-for-all sacrifice, and that was our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we say that we need a priest today, that is actually an affront to the work of Christ. If we say that we still need a priest then we're saying that something needs to be added to the work that Christ did in order to accomplish our salvation. So we don't want to blaspheme the name of Christ. We don't want to denigrate the work of God. So we make no claims for priesthood other than the spiritual priesthood that each of us has as a believer in Jesus Christ. Our subject is the garments of the priests. And before we continue the discussion of this, I want to show you the picture of the high priest again, uh, the priest in his full dress of his office. And in the second verse of our text, God gave Moses this command, And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. The most highly skilled artisans in Israel were chosen to make these clothes. God gave them the skills to be able to do it. He directed all of their talents to make this finished product that was truly magnificent and, as the Word of God says, for glory and for beauty. And I have a variation of artist concepts of this picture. Nobody knows exactly what these garments look like. And we know the materials used and we have the written descriptions of them, but we don't have any visuals of it. But this is the image that I grew up with. And uh, I saw this uh, a long, long time ago. I've explained how my dad used these um, these slides of the tabernacle when I was just a young boy. And so in, in the 1950s, my, my dad used this to teach the tabernacle. And to me, this is what the high priest looked like. So if you were to ask me, what does Aaron look like? That's the picture that I would have in my mind. But of course, we all know that's not Aaron. Now, I'm pointing back there. You're supposed to be looking up here, of course. Uh, that... Uh, that that's not Aaron. He could have looked like that, but that would have been coincidence. And I think maybe that gives us an idea why we wouldn't want to have pictures of Jesus. And this is because there's an image that gets stamped stamped in our mind, so that uh, when we we hear the name Jesus, that image is the thing that 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 comes to mind. That's what we think of. So when you get to heaven, some of you might think, "Well, I'm in the wrong place," and. Uh, If I see some of you in heaven, I might think you are probably in the wrong place. But uh, 
You might not know when you see Jesus, you won't recognize him uh, if you got that picture always in your mind because he doesn't look like the picture. So for sure you would never want to have Jesus in an image on a crucifix. Nobody ought to possess Christ on a cross because every image that you make of Jesus is less than what he is. You can only show Jesus in his humanity and Jesus was God and that's one of the reasons that we don't want to have a picture of him. But at any rate, this is the visualization that I have of Aaron. And to me, this is what those special clothes look like in Exodus chapter 28. And it suits me to think that way. And I think that it, uh, uh, it, it accurately, I think, to some degree, reflects what we find here in Exodus chapter 28. Now, verse number 4 says, And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, and an ephod, and a robe, and a broidered coat, a mitre, and a girdle. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And they shall take gold, and blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine linen. Now we've stepped through each part of the clothing until we're very near to completing this entire wardrobe. And we started at the end of the chapter with the undergarments of fine linen. Uh, this was the white robe and also the breeches. Then next, the priest tied the rope, the robe shut, that is the linen robe. He tied it shut with a sash that was called a girdle. Then he put over that the blue robe, and that is the blue robe of the ephod. And then over the blue robe of the ephod, he slipped a one-piece tunic, a multicolored piece over his head and his shoulders, and that was the ephod. Uh, the ephod was made of blue and purple and scarlet threads, fastened at the shoulders with, with two stones, and on each of those two stones were engraved six of the names of the children of Israel. And then around the priest's waist, there was a curious girdle. Curious means artistic, and that's the girdle that you see in verse number 8 of this text. And then as a last part, a last part of the clothing for the torso, there was a breastplate. And the priest wore this over his chest, and on it were settings of gold, and there was an assortment of 12 precious stones. These were set in four rows of three, and on each stone was the name of one of Jacob's sons. So that's Israel. That's the whole nation of Israel represented. And the priest was their priest to God. And he is the only priest who has chosen to make sacrifices for them. Now I want to return to the breastplate and talk a little bit more about that this evening as we continue the last discussion. And this is part number five of our outline, which is the breastplate that stands for the compassion and the wisdom of Christ. The compassion of Christ, that, that's the first character issue that's pictured in the breastplate. In verse number 29, And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth in unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Aaron wore the names over his heart, and that was to show they were his people. He stood in their place. He brought them to God. He loved them. He was from among them. These are his people, and the sacrifice that he made was a covering for them all. And so we learn from this that Christ loves his people, that our names are engraved upon him, and he brings us before the Heavenly Father to be blessed by him. The people that he represents are those that are 
chosen by the Father and are given to him to be redeemed, redeemed and to receive an in, incorruptible inheritance in heaven. So each of them has their, has their names written. And those names were written in the book of life in eternity past. They've been known to the Godhead since then. And Jesus came to die for them. The Holy Spirit in time worked regeneration and brought them to repentance and faith. And they are the children of God by faith. Aaron would take these names on that breastplate into the tabernacle, into the holy place. And there before the altar of incense, uh, picturing Jesus with the names of the redeemed before the Father to intercede, Aaron would take those to the altar of incense. In Hebrews 9.24 it says, For Christ has not entered into the holy place, holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And so with compassion for his people, Christ appears before the Father and he pleads the blood and his righteousness for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, if you'll look at verse number 30, Exodus 28, verse number 30, And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord, and Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. Now the, the next representation in the breastplate is the wisdom of Christ. That he is compassionate towards his people and in wisdom he directs them. Now just to refresh you on the outline if you're waiting to get those other parts of it. First of all, we are close to Christ's heart. That's seen in the breastplate over Aaron's heart. Then secondly, we are kept by God's grace. His grace in keeping us is shown by the inscription of the names that are on the stones. They are preserved as a memorial forever, even as the scripture says that our names are engraved upon the palms of Christ's hands. And now thirdly, what I want to talk to you about tonight is the wisdom. The wisdom of Christ and that we are confident in his will. Mark wrote that when the people heard Christ, they were astonished at his words. And they said about him, he has done all things well. And because of the wisdom of Christ, we're confident that he does all things well. And that his will for us is always best. And we desire to live in his will, in his will because he knows every path that we should take. And he sees around the corners where we can't see. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the outcome of every situation. And so we're confident that he'll always lead us in the direction that we need to go. Now the wisdom of Christ then brings us to this most mysterious part of the priest's clothing. And that is the Urim and the Thummim that we see in verse number 30. Now I want to put that picture of the priest up again if we could. And uh, it might be, uh, if you don't mind, roll that back there a little bit. Might be hard for you to see this because uh, you can't get too close to that to see all the details of the breastplate. But close inspection of this picture would not reveal the location of the Urim and the Thummim. I don't know if that is an oversight or if that's by design, but I think probably it's not shown 
because there isn't much of a consensus about what the Urim and the Thummim were. Some say there are two more stones that go in this breastplate, but they're hidden in a pouch, in which case you wouldn't see them if they're hidden, so you wouldn't, they wouldn't be in the picture. Others say that Urim and Thummim refer to names of God and that they were actually stones that had scriptures that were inscribed on them and put on the breastplate, and still we don't see that in the picture. Urim and Thummim mean means lights and perfections. And so perhaps this refers to the light of God's glory and to the perfection of Christ. And I'm sure in some sense that would be true because we those statements are true. We know that God is glorious light and we know that Christ is complete perfection. And then there's another interesting explanation that was offered by John Gill. Nobody knows for sure what these were. And so it's kind of strange when you're reading this and trying to trying to figure out what it what it is or what they were is that what one author suggests uh to the meaning of it is denied by another and considered to be complete heresy uh, or just uh, just plain old conjecture but Gill said that the Urim and the Thummim were the same as the stones in the breastplate in other words these aren't extra stones but he thought that it meant these stones would light up when God uh, would speak to the uh, to the priest, and so whenever there was an inquiry about the direction of God's will, these stones would light up, and they would spell out the answer. And uh, Gill didn't say that part, although there are others that say that that it would spell out an answer, sort of like a heavenly eight ball that he would wear on his uh, on his chest. Matthew Poole, who was a Puritan from the 17th century and lived just a little bit before John Gill, said, well, all that stuff is foolishness. And uh, he said uh, his objection was that if that was true, then the only way that the priest would be able to read what was on the stones was to take the breastplate off and look at it. And the Bible doesn't say anything about him doing that. Then Gill also went on to say that whenever the stones are mentioned, Urim and Thummim are not mentioned, which to him meant that they must be the same thing because they're not mentioned in the same passage together. Poole denied that. and uh, But it wasn't on the basis that he knew better, but he said, God didn't say that. God didn't say that. And so we ought not to say it either. Maybe that's Maybe that's the safest conclusion for us. God didn't say it. So we just don't know. All we know is that in some way God's judgment was known through these two things that are called lights and perfections. So the high priest would take the Urim and the Thummim and he would use those when, the, when he needed to get a direction from the Lord. And I'm sure there are many of you that would like to have that divine eight ball so that whenever you needed to know something, if you had a question, you would need to come to forum class. You'd just take out your divine eight ball and you'd ask it and you'd turn it over and there would be the answer that you need. That'd be a neat thing to have. You know, sometimes I think it would be good that every time that a preacher told the truth, that a green light would go on. You just get a green light and then if he told something wasn't true, then a red light would come on. And so I thought about that and I, I decided if that were to happen... We could gather up all the charismatic preachers and all the Roman Catholics and all the Mormons and the JWs and we could put them all in one part of town and we could call that the red light district and that would be uh, perfect for them. But at least in the Old Testament times, God had a way of making his, his decisions known 
And everybody would know, is this what God wants? Is this, what, uh, is this just the priest's opinion? Is this what he says, or is it actually what God wants? Is this his commandment? And God would show that by the Urim and the Thummim. Now, why would God do things like that? Well, one of the things that we need to remember is that in those days, they didn't have the Bible. Several times in the Old Testament, you'll, you'll see where it says there was a book of this, a book of that, like Book of Jasher, for instance, and, and they had books like those, but those, were not, those weren't divine scripture, and uh, so they didn't actually have, they didn't have the Bible. Could be possible that they had the book of Job, since it's probably from around the time of Abraham. And it wasn't until the end of Moses' life that they had a, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so the Urim and the Thummim was a good method for, for God to let his people know what he wanted them to do. But that's not what God does today. That's not his method today. Now, if you'll turn back a, a few pages to chapter 25 in Exodus, we'll look here at the, uh, at the promise that God gave and instructions for making the mercy seat that goes above the Ark of the Covenant. And by the way, we, we will talk about the mercy seat in the end of this series uh, after the, we talk about the atonement, the day of atonement. But here are instructions for the mercy seat. Exodus 25, verse number 21 and thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Now the Lord didn't make all of his will known to Israel at one time. And so the priests would, would go to the mercy seat, and that's where the glory of God was in the, in, the, uh, in the light of the Shekinah. Now, remember that he was only able to go see this light one time for year, so if, one time each year. So I suppose he had a whole list of questions that he wanted to ask and bring them all at one time. But there he would meet with God at the mercy seat where that light was, and, and God would, would show him his will. Now, what I'd like to do for just a moment here is to kind of connect a few dots that you see in Scripture to help us to get a little bit of understanding of this. So now if you'll turn to Judges chapter 20, in Judges chapter 20, and this, this is in the days after Israel settled in Canaan, and it was before Israel had a king, and that was a very chaotic, hectic time. And there wasn't a great prophet in Israel that would lead them like they had at other times, and and uh, it wasn't until the end of that period that they had the prophet Samuel, but instead they had judges. You remember that story? And it might even be that the high priest at times would step in and, and give direction, uh, perhaps as Eli did before Samuel. But here in Judges chapter 20 and verse 27, And the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet go again out to battle? Now this is the children of Israel saying this part. Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them 
in thine, into thine hand. Now, in, in this story, Israel went to the tabernacle of God that was at Shiloh, and they inquired there. And it says that they went, they went there because the Ark of the Covenant was there, and that's the place where God met with his people. In David's time, the high priest was Abiathar, and David went to him. And you remember the story of how David went to ask for the ephod, the Word of God says, that he might inquire of the Lord. And then in 1 Samuel 28, verse 6, we find Saul also seeking to the ephod and uh, the Urim in order, and the Thummim in order to get an answer from God. And so in 1 Samuel 28, verse 6, and when Samuel, inqu- or Saul rather, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. Now Saul then attempted to get an answer from Urim and Thummim. So what do we learn from all these independent accounts of how they received the Lord's instructions? Well, I believe we put all this together and we learned that Urim and Thummim were in the ephod. This is part of the high priest's dress and he would use that before the Ark of the Covenant. These are stones or whatever they were used to communicate with God. So God's will then was made known in supernatural ways. Sometimes God would speak like he did to Moses at the burning bush, like he did to Abraham on Mount Moriah. Sometimes God would use mental telepathy. That is, he would just impress into the mind what his will for his people uh, was. I think perhaps that God may have spoken audibly when they used the Urim and the Thummim. But what are the Urim and Thummim? Still nobody knows. And I could stand here and I could guess with you all night long and we could read all the commentators and what they have to say. And in the end, we still don't know exactly what it was. Joseph Smith claimed that it was by the Urim and Thummim that he was able to translate the golden plates that he found in Palmyra, New York that became the Book of Mormon. So the nonsense of the Book of Mormon came out of that, and you can believe it if you want to. Did God speak to Joseph Smith, who's a false prophet, a liar, a lunatic, and a pedophile? Did he speak to him supernaturally? Do you believe that? Oh, good, because if you do, then I have a magic eight ball that I want to sell you. So what do we know about this Urim and Thummim? Well, we know this. First of all, Urim means light. That God's will is revealed in the light. If you want to find Jesus uh, in, in the priest, that is the Old Testament priest, the first thing that you need to do is go towards the light. Now let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and here we can read this marvelous testimony of Christ and about light, the light of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6 And while you're turning there, I'm sure you all remember the the scriptures that Jesus said he is the light of the world. So we're not going to have any trouble connecting Thummim to Jesus Christ, uh, Urim rather, to Jesus Christ, if that Urim means light. But here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Now, what we need to get from that is how the Apostle Paul ties the light of the glory of God directly into the light or, or into Jesus Christ himself, and that Christ also dwells in a light that no man can approach to. In 1 John 1, 5, it says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, you remember that Moses ran squarely into this issue of the light, the unapproachable light, when he met with God on Mount Sinai. He couldn't survive the light of God's glory. And so God hid him in the cleft of the rock in order to shield him from that glory. And so the Bible teaches then that to have fellowship with God, we must be in the light. That God is light and also Jesus is unapproachable light, which means that he is God. He's the light of the world. And so to be near him and to, be fe- and to fellowship with him, we must also be in the light. And so you can forget about living in sin if you want to walk with Christ. John said that Jesus is in the light. And if you walk in darkness, you can't walk with Christ. So all of us as church members need to remember this, that if your way of life is to walk in the darkness, then you need not think that you're ever going to meet Christ there. You're not going to receive any direction from Him in the darkness. And you'll not get any benefits of His wisdom. And so you walk alone if you continue to walk in darkness. Urim means light. Next is the thumman. Thumman means perfections. I hardly think that you would need me to go through the numerous repetitions of the perfections of Christ. Five sacrifices that we studied brought those out. We got into the details of Christ's perfection. We looked at sweet savor offerings that exalted the virtues of Christ in his life. And then we looked at the non-sweet savor offerings and we talked about how Jesus Christ must be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so if you want to see Christ in Thummim, you just take that word perfect, perfect. And that's sufficient to describe him. The, the priest wore plenty of white in this, in this uh, clothing that he wore. That showed the purity of Christ and perfect righteousness. And so in Urim and Thummim, we see that Christ is the perfection of truth, that he is all wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2 verse 3 says, In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, we return to the question... How is the wisdom and the knowledge of Christ made known to us today? Does God ever speak audibly to us today? Do we have Urim and Thummim? Well, I've got two answers for that. No. And yes, there is a sense in which we do have Urim and Thummim today. We have the light and the perfection of God's Word. We have a light that is... uh, We have a, a book, rather, that is the light for our path and that is the lamp to our feet. And that is an infallible, a perfect, infallible God for our way. And in the Word of God, we have the will for Christians today. And that is sufficient, that we have the will of God for Christians. That's sufficient to be our source in all things 
of the wisdom of God. Now, I'd like you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Well, Peter makes this interesting remark about hearing the audible voice of God. And his comments are, are somewhat surprising to us in one sense, but unmistakable about the difference in how he heard and how we hear God today. So he begins by describing this glorious event of the transfiguration. He, along with James and John, were, were with Jesus and they saw him transfigured. And they heard God the Father speak from heaven. That was never common at any time, but they did hear God speak. Second Peter 1 verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now that's Peter's account of the transfiguration. You can read that in Matthew chapter 17. But remarkably and almost mind-blowingly are the next things that he says in verse number 19. We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Here Peter tells us that the Bible is more reliable and trustworthy than what you see with your eyes and hear with your ears. What God said in the Word is to be believed above anything that you see or you hear. So if you think that you saw something supernatural or that you heard the supernatural, it doesn't have as much authority as what's written in the Word of God, and so you're not to believe it. If someone says, but I, I saw a vision, and there I saw Christ, and Christ told me to do this, I don't care. The Word of God is above your eyes and your ears. But I saw an angel. I saw the Virgin Mary. I don't care. The Word of God is above your eyes and your ears. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 1, that the gospel received through the written word is greater than supernatural revelations. He says in Galatians 1.6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Now there Paul says, if there is an angel who comes down from heaven and he speaks a different word than what I have told you under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, don't believe it. And if there is some man who says that he is a holy man and he speaks a different word from the Bible, don't believe it. But what if this man says, well, I have an extra message from God. Nobody knows this, and God has told it to me. I have something uh, from God that the Bible doesn't say. Don't believe him. He's cursed, according to the Apostle Paul. 
But what if he says, God appeared to me and God told me this. And then you check it out and it turns out, well, yes, that's the same thing that was said in the Bible. Then what do you say? You say, what's the point of God telling you that? It was already in the Bible. So there's only one reason that a preacher would say things like that. And that's to sound impressive and to put himself into the mix with God. And you don't need a preacher like that. You just cut out the middleman and go directly to God. And that's right here. That's all that you need to do. Now we could go a little bit further. We could look at the end of both Testaments, both the Old and the New Testament, where God says, if you add anything to His Word or you take anything away from it, I'm going to heap plagues on top of you. So God is very serious about His Word. When He finished the Word, it was finished. God said all that He wanted to say. So there's not a need for other prophecies. We don't need another word of knowledge because the Bible is Urim and Thummim. It's the perfect light of the Word of God. Most of you, uh, many of you, went through the fundamentals class and we got a heavy dose of this when we studied this. And uh, You remember this familiar passage if you want to turn there in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In this chapter tells us about the sufficiency of the scriptures. Does anyone need something other than the Bible? Well, this is what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy. He said, and that from a child, or Timothy, since you were a child, you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The scriptures make us wise unto salvation. They teach us doctrine. They correct our mistakes. They instruct us about living in righteousness. And then what else does Paul say? They truly or if we wanted to say thoroughly, furnish you unto all good works. Well, the question would be then, knowing this, what does the Bible lack? If it furnishes us to all good works, if it's good for all of our instruction, then what does the Bible lack? And the answer to that would have to be nothing. The Bible lacks nothing. So why do you need something more than the Bible? It has everything. So we would never accept anything else that someone says, God, somebody gave me this, or an angel gave me this, or even God himself gave me this, when God said, what I've said is sufficient. You don't need anything more. All you need is the Word of God. And this is the reason that we teach the Bible alone. We say it is sufficient for our faith and our practice, and that means all of our faith and practice. Now that, that is one of the glaring errors of the modern priesthood. The priesthood of Catholicism and of Mormonism says that you need more than the Bible. Or you need somebody to interpret the Bible for you. Or you need the traditions of the church in order to be saved. And so they have this magisterium that goes all the way from the priest in the parish to the Pope in Rome. And in the end, this is what they'll tell you, we have more authority than the Bible. And so they say the Bible is not enough, which means Jesus is not enough. And to that, Peter and Paul would say, we've had enough. 
We don't want to hear any more of that. Away with all of that. So we have a sure word of prophecy that's true, it is sufficient, and it has stood the test of time. We have a sufficient Bible. And if we believe what's in the Bible, that will take us to heaven. And that's all we need to get there. What's in the Bible? We don't need more and we don't accept less. Joseph Smith said, you need the priesthood. And then he said, you need the Book of Mormon. I don't suggest that you swear on the Book of Mormon at the judgment. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes, I swear on the Book of Mormon. Good luck with that. Uh, you get to the great white throne of judgment of God, and that's as close as you're ever going to get to Him. So here's the bottom line of this discussion. The Word of God is our Urim and our Thummim. We discern God's will through the Bible. And this exalted place of Scripture can't be missed. When you come to places like the 119th Psalm, where you have 176 verses that are an ode to the Word of God. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. You grasp the meaning of that verse? Essentially it means that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of all the words of God and his name is the highest of all and is by his name that we know God. Jesus Christ is revealed in the Word. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So how can anybody say, I've got something else. Or I need something else. I have something that's equal to the Word of God. There can't be anything equal to the Word of God because the Word of God is Jesus Christ. There can't be anything higher than that. So no wonder Paul says the person who preaches another gospel is to be accursed. So the word, that's our Urim and our Thummim. And false religious systems that put anything above the word are cursed. They are anathema, separated from God. Now let me emphasize next, what are we to do to learn the will of God? What are we to do to learn God's will? Well, as... In the Old Testament, we have to wait on God. We're never to presume that we know what God wants us to do. We have to go through the proper steps to find out, which means that you must stop and wait on God. How do you do that? How do you, actually, how do, you do that? How do you stop and wait on God? Well, the first thing that you have to do is you must be a student of the Word. To find the will of God, you must be a student of God's Word. Now, you can have good teachers that can use the word skillfully and they can teach you. But I've met many Christians who've just made up their minds about the word. They think they know what God wants them to do. They think they know what God wants them to believe. And these are actually gospel-hardened people who can't be taught because they won't listen long enough to find out where they're wrong. And so... These are Christians that, that we have to ask. How do you know what God wants you to do? What process did you follow to find out what God wants you to do? Now, what I'm going to say next may surprise you, but they say, well, I know it's God's will because I prayed about it. How many of you believe that you can pray and that's all you need to do is determine God's will? Anybody? 
Are you afraid to answer? Well, I'm glad it looks like nobody believes that all you need to do is pray to determine God's will. I hope none of you believe that's true. We can't pray to know God's will until we have read to know God's will. And do you understand why? It's because what you get back from prayer, what you think you get back from prayer, is subjective. If you pray without the knowledge of God's word then Satan may very well take that prayer and feed back to you false information. And how are you going to know if it's false if you don't, if you don't know if it contradicts God? You have no way of knowing that. Until, until you have surrendered to what God has said in the Word, your prayer gauge is off. You can misinterpret. You misinterpret things. And what most often you think is God's will is your will. I don't put much stock in a Christian who says, Pastor, I prayed about this, and this is what I think God is leading me to do. And I have almost zero faith in that person and what they say about what they prayed about if they've not been faithful to the Lord's work. And I don't have much faith in what they have to say if they haven't been right here studying side by side with us as we look into God's Word. And I don't have much faith that they can make big decisions about their life, and yet they've never come to the church body and asked the people of God to pray with them, to help them to determine if that's God's will, and to examine God's Word to see if it is. You see, the reason they don't is they don't really want to hear from God. They don't really want to hear from God. They've already made up their mind. They have their answer, and their answer is their answer. And they don't want to hear disagreements because a disagreement shoots them down from what they want. Ultimately, of course, you must deal with God. You answer to God and His will is between you and Him. But even then, I know it's not God's will if the proper steps have not been taken. And your life doesn't show that you are in the place where you can hear from God. You've got to wait on the Lord. You've got to use the Urim and the Thummim to get the answer, the Word of God. Now, one final note. You should have already determined that the, the uh, Word of God is the way to know the will of God. And when I, when I say that, this is not as mysterious as the Old Testament, is it? This is not nearly as mysterious as trying to figure out what Urim and Thummim are. We don't need to guess about any of this. All you need to know the will of God is to know the Word. We say, well, you know, does God tell you what color car to buy? No. But He tells you not to spend your tithes to buy it. And He tells you to be a good financial uh, steward of, of, his, of His money. Does God tell you the name of the boy or the girl that you ought to marry? No. But He does tell you what kind of man or woman they ought to be. And if they match that criteria, you're okay. If the person that you want to marry is that kind of person that God says you should marry, that is what you find in the Word of God, doesn't matter what their name is. Jack, John, Mary or Susan, doesn't matter. Don't, don't think ahead of me here now. It, does, it doesn't matter. Maybe those are the old names. You don't hear those names anymore. Maybe it's, maybe it's Mason and Morgan and Megan and Macaulay, whatever their names are. But if you find a born-again believer who is faithful to the Lord, choose the one you want, and that will be God's choice for you. See, people ask me a lot of times, you know, I, I, I've been praying about this, I just, uh, I just don't know 
who I'm supposed to marry and I'm afraid I'm going to make the wrong choice or whatever. Well, you look at the criteria in the Word of God. Does this person match what the Bible says that he ought to be or she ought to be? And then it doesn't matter from there. Choose the one that you want because that will be in God's will. It's as simple as that. So you don't sweat the minutiae on this stuff. Find the guidelines of the Word and there's not any need to second guess it. Now, one, one, last, uh, one last thought, one more last thought. And uh, people will sometimes try to outsmart me. Not that I can't be outsmarted, but they'll say, Oh, but you teach that God is sovereign, right? Yes, I teach that God is sovereign. So whatever I choose, then that must be God's perfect will. Because God is sovereign, so it doesn't matter what I choose. That's another subject for a different day. And I'll tell you this, that the secret will of God is not for you to speculate. You better stick with what you know and what God said in His Word because you're not going to like what happens when you begin to probe the spiritual world. So this is the priest's breastplate. It's close to his heart. It speaks of the persevering and preserving grace of God. It speaks of confidence in God's will. And it tells us that God will always lead us in the right direction. That Christ is compassionate and he is all wise. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have magnified the word because... Jesus Christ himself is the living word, and these are your words that you've spoken to us. And there's nothing higher than that. It's the only authority. It's the only one that we need. And we thank you, Lord, that we can know your will today for our lives by just reading this word that you've given us. Help us to be good students of it. Help us not to be wandering in the darkness and trying to figure out what we should do. It's clearly laid out in your word if we'll just take the time to read it. Bless your people, Lord. We thank you for this time we spent together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.